Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another with love, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to tell you a story of a man who was shipwrecked. He was on the desert island, and he was there by himself, single, all alone. He had to do everything by himself. Finally, after years, someone came to rescue him. And there he had taken care of things pretty well. He had a nice house that he had built, almost like a mansion. Next to the house, he had constructed a church. And he even put a steeple on top of it. But next to that was another fine, magnificent building. Those who came to rescue him said, What is that big place? He said, well, that's my house. That's where I live. What is the next door? Well, it looks like a church. He said, it is a church. I built myself a church. Oh, he said, that's great. Well, what is the other building there? Oh, he said, that's another church. I had an argument in the old one, and I so moved my membership. All too often, selfishness. Pride, unforgiveness, a mentality that church exists to meet my needs, prevails and we become disgruntled. We divide, and there is disunity for the wrong reasons. Disunity grieves the heart of God and brings dishonor to His name. I read about a church where there was division. And it began over an argument at a potluck supper. When a lady brought a salad she had made with cool whip instead of real whipping cream. Churches have divided over whether the pianist should sit to the right or to the left side of the podium. Argument over whether the Lord's Supper should be served from the front to the back or from the back to the front. Argument over trying to decide whether a kitchen should be a part of a church building or not. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 17, Paul, 1 through 16, Paul is calling us to preserve the unity. Today we will look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Here Paul is exhorting us to unity. As we try to understand this passage, I have three headings for you. First, we must understand the importance of unity. Verse 1. Second, we must cultivate the qualities that preserve unity. Verse 2. Third, we must strive to preserve the unity, verse 3. First, 
Let's understand the importance of unity and that's seen in verse 1. But before we understand the importance of unity, we need to understand the importance of our calling that undergirds that unity. That's what the Apostle Paul begins to do in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The Apostle Paul uses, begins the word, begins the verse with the word, therefore. To make the connection between faith and practice. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has laid down the important teaching about the church. And now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we are to live in the light of what we have been taught. The word therefore is therefore a conjunction, which leads from doctrine to application. Doctrine is important to Christian living. But many Christians do not want doctrine. They teach that doctrines divide. Some seek the experience or the feeling of exhilaration that one gets when one is in church. They want the emotions while singing or worshiping. And if the song doesn't provide the emotionalism, then they feel like they haven't worshipped. Not that we must not have emotions, but then they put emotions in the front end. Some are into social gospel. Well, all they want is service projects. They want to build homes for the homeless and feed the poor and and volunteer at homeless shelter. Now, that's not wrong. That's what we must do as a result of Christ working in our hearts, serving others. So what some pastors do is they will completely bypass the teaching of doctrines and teach only practical aspects of scriptures, reasoning that we only need practical applications for our lives. I've heard this so many times. Let's get into the practical. Well, they find the doctrinal stuff in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 and other passages in the Bible, dry and impractical. They they are excited about what Paul is teaching in the second half of Ephesians. They want to know about spiritual gifts. They want to know about how to exercise spiritual gifts. They are excited about Paul's teaching on family and other practical stuff. But when it comes to doctrine, they largely ignore the doctrine because they find it dry and boring. Well, beloved, practice without doctrine leads to deviations from the truth. It gives us a feeling of exhilaration, but that will soon fade away because it has got nothing to sustain it. Now, on the other spectrum, we have Christians who stop with the doctrines. That's all they teach. Nothing but doctrines. There is no so what. If we merely teach doctrine and fail to teach how to turn the doctrines into practice, that will only lead us to arrogance. 
I mean, these are people who are satisfied on the Mount of Transfiguration and they forget that they must go down into the valley and dwell into the problems of daily life and living. As one commentator said, doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy. So the word therefore in chapter 4 verse 1 reminds us that life which we are to live always results from the application of doctrine. Doctrine must always come first. Duty flows out of doctrine. Our life flows out of theology. Doctrine is important. Theology is important. Uh, You cannot expect someone to, to function based on what he doesn't know. Paul is urging us here in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. The word urge in the Greek is the word parakaleo, from which we get our word parakletos, for the Holy Spirit. It means someone who is coming alongside another person and encouraging them. So Paul is is saying, I I, want to encourage you. I want to beseech you. I want to entreat you. He's imploring us. This verb is in the present tense. That means he is continually begging. He's imploring. He's encouraging us. And he's urging us. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And the way you come alongside someone and encourage someone and exhort someone is through the word of God. By teaching God's word. This is why we teach God's word in this church. This is why this church is all about God's word. We want to lift God's word high. This is why we teach doctrines to show you how to live your life And why you do what you do. So coming to chapter 4 verse 1. He says I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And I'm urging you to walk. The word walk denotes an activity. It means daily conduct. The tense of the verb walk is aorist. A-O-R-I-S-D. Now you may wonder what it is. Let me give you a quick grammar lesson. If I were to show you a black and white picture of your pastor studying at his desk, what do you see? What does the picture tell you? The picture doesn't tell you how long your pastor has been studying. The picture doesn't tell you when your pastor sat at the desk to study. All that the picture tells you is the action. And what is the action? Your pastor is studying. That's what an aorist tense means. Here, Paul uses the aorist tense and he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the call. So what is the focus, the action of walking in a manner worthy of the calling? Does that make sense? All right. So here, as Paul says this, He's saying, I want you to walk, and the action is, the emphasis is on the action. It's important 
for us to understand that we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, even as we think about walking in a manner worthy of the calling, you and I need to understand that you will not be able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel unless and until you are first and foremost a child of God. As one commentator wrote, you must be first a child of God before you can be a servant of God. Another writer wrote, it is vain, it is in vain to tell the dead man to rise up and walk until the dead man is made alive. And so, when we hear these words that urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, we need to understand that you and I cannot do that unless and until we are first a child of God. And how would you and I become a child of God? It's straightforward. It is through the free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you say, what is the gospel? The gospel is nothing but the free gift of God. Well, tell me what's the gospel. Well, the gospel is this. That you and I are sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is what? Death. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, 9, 10 and following, there's no one that desires God. There's no one who seeks after God. We are just dead cadavers. But then here's the fun part. But God was rich in mercy. He sent Jesus Christ into the world, who came to the world, who lived as a man, lived a righteous life, and then he goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he, he is on the cross, but before he goes, as he goes on the cross, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin, Christ was sinless. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That means he took your sin, your unrighteousness upon him, upon the cross. And in turn, he gives us his perfect righteousness. His perfect righteousness that is given to us, that is imputed to us. And, and so when you and I look up to Christ and say, Christ, I want you, I need you, I want you to be my Savior. He opens your eyes, he gives you the gift of faith by which you're able to live in him and love him and trust in him. He gives you his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, and you have eternal life. He adopts you into his kingdom and now you're a child of God. He begins the work of sanctification in you. And so there you go. Wow, that's so simple, right? And it's a free gift. You and I don't have to pay a penny to get salvation. All that you and I need to do is recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And Christ is that Savior. You see, that's how we become a child of God. And so we are now able to go forward with this because you and I will not be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord unless and until we are first a child of God. Does that make sense? All right. Let's move on. 
Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. An exhortation is to walk worthy. It's used in scriptures multiple times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, we read, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, we are supposed to walk in a manner worthy of God. We see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, you are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we read, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we read here that you are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, You are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the Bible does talk about walking in a manner worthy, worthy of God, worthy of the Lord, worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called. When you look at the word calling in verse 1, there are two types of calling. There is a general call and then there is a effectual call or a salvific call or a special call. What is the general call? Well, the general call of the gospel is the proclamation of the gospel given to people everywhere. We read in Acts chapter eight, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria. That's the general proclamation of the gospel. This general call continues to go out today, everywhere, throughout all the world, throughout all the churches. You're seated here in this church, but any other church, any other Bible-believing church where the gospel is taught, where gospel is proclaimed, the gospel is given out. It's proclaimed. That's a general call. In fact, this call will also be given out on the last day. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, reads, Then I saw another angel. Now, this is the last day. I saw another angel flying directly overhead. That's cool. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So in, the, in that last day, there will be an angel flying up in the air, heralding, proclaiming, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the gospel will be preached to everyone to the ends of the earth, because there will be not a single soul on planet earth who will say, I did not hear the gospel. That's the general call of the gospel. But there is also an effectual call. Not all who receive the general call receive the effectual call or the salvific call. 
Because Matthew chapter 22, verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. So there is the effectual call, and it has to do with the election of people. The ones who have been called effectually are the ones who have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, whose names have been written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life, before the foundation of the world. This is what we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And now listen to this, folks. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the effectual call. And those whom he called, which is the effectual call, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those who are effectually called are those who have been predestined to salvation from before the foundation of the world. So the general call is given out. And those who are effectually called will believe the gospel, will be saved. Another passage that talks about is, it is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here, we have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is what the effectual call does. When we get saved, we are saved from darkness and we are brought into light. When we are saved, we are taken from the kingdom of darkness and taken into the kingdom of light. When we are saved, we are taken from being sons of Satan and we are now sons of God. Sons and daughters of God. That's what happens when you get effectually saved, when you get saved. That's your calling. You know, before we were saved, we were like the blind man in John chapter 9. He couldn't see anything. He was born blind. You know what it is to be born blind? You may not. Find someone who's been born blind and ask him what light is. He has no clue what light is. You can explain to him, but he doesn't understand that. It's beyond him. And in the same way, before we were children of God, before we were adopted, before we were saved by the gospel, we were blind. We could not see Christ. We could not understand Christ. You probably sat in church many Sundays and you had no clue on what the pastor was trying to preach. You did not understand what it means to be truly born again. That's what Nicodemus said. Should I go back into my mother's womb? How can I be born again? We do not understand what it means to be spiritually bankrupt. We were emotionally warped. We were spiritually dead. We were morally bankrupt. 
But when you are effectually called, God calls you from light to darkness. When you are effectually called, God calls you from death to life. He gives you power to live out that life. He doesn't just expect you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling without giving you the power to live that life. God doesn't do that. He empowers you. In fact, we've seen that in Ephesians chapter 1. We see that He gives us the power that raised Christ from the dead. He gives us resurrection power. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that you and I have to live our Christian life. And after we are truly saved, there's a change in our lives. Grace is always transformative. Saving grace always, may I use the word again, always transforms. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, If any man is in Christ, guess what? He's kainos in the Greek. He's a new creation. He's a new creation. So, what does a life transformed by the gospel look like? Because if we need to understand what is it meaning, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and we know our calling is an effectual calling that brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and if we are in the kingdom of light, and if we are children of God, if we are adopted sons and daughters of the God Most High, and if we are no longer the same... If we are a new creation, then there is to be something different about our lives, right? How should our lives be? Well, the Bible tells you how our lives ought to be. Would you want to know that? Please, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John comes towards the end of the New Testament. Write Revelation, go back Jude. And then you'll come to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Number one on the list, what does your life look like? You will enjoy fellowship with Christ and His redeemed people. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You will desire fellowship. That's indicative, right? When you become a Christian, coming to church is, I want to go to church. Why? Yes, I'm going to meet our friends. I'm going to meet my brothers and sisters in the Lord. But more than that, it's the joy of coming to church and worshiping Jesus Christ. It's that desire that you have to come to church. Number one. Number two on the list. Look, at, look with me in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You will love to walk in the light. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. By the way, practicing truth is a present continual tense. That means you do not continually practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, again, if we continually walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sins. 
So that means if you are transformed by the blood of Christ, you will walk in the light, not in darkness. That means it will be a habitual, continual pattern of your life. Not perfect pattern of your life, but it will be a habitual pattern of your life. At the same time, you would not take that as a license to sin, because the Bible says, no, make ganito in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says, anyone who is transformed and is a Christian will not continue in sin. Right? Why would you take grace as a license to sin? You won't. Here is someone who loved to walk in the light and not in darkness. Number three on the list, you will be quick to admit your sin. Let's look at verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means you will be quick to admit that you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. That's characteristic of transformative grace. Number four on the list, you will delight in obeying God's word. Look with me in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That means a person who is transformed by saving grace will walk, will delight in obeying God's word. It will be a habitual pattern in his life. Next on the list, you'll be separated. You live a life of separation from the world. You will not be like the world. Please look with me in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That means here is a person who is in the world. By the way, you ought to be in the world. It's funny, right? When you get saved, Christ doesn't just... Take you up, right? You know, like you walked, you drive down that Walgreen or CVS pharmacy and you're outside waiting for the pharmacy and you put your prescription list in it and there's this suction that pulls the prescription up. I'm glad it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I wish it had. You know, the moment you became a Christian, God just pulled you out of it. But no, he puts you here. And there's a reason why he puts you here. He puts you here that you would continue to be his witnesses. Someone said, the boat is in the water, but be careful if the water gets into the boat. What will happen if the water gets into the boat? The boat will sink. So you are to live a life of separation in the world. That's true transformative grace. True transformative grace transforms you. It doesn't live you the same way. And we can go on. I'll take one more. And First John is a great book to read. Please take Go home and read through that. It'll tell you characteristics of the test of a true Christian. 
By the way, one last thing. You will desire purity and holiness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That means you will desire purity in your life. You'll desire holiness in your life. You will want to be like Christ. Your desire will be to be like Christ. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Why should you be continued? Why should you continue to walk like the devil? You've been, you've been snatched out of his domain. You're no longer in his domain anymore. You are instead in a new domain. You belong to Christ. Let's walk like Christ. Let's exemplify Christ. Let's honor Christ. Let's glorify Christ. Let's desire to be like Christ. Let Christ be our satisfaction and our joy. So we will walk the walk. Rather than just talking the talk. You know what that means? John MacArthur says, The believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which he has been called is one whose daily living corresponds to his high position as a child of God and fellow heir with Jesus Christ. Means his practical living matches his spiritual position. Now, that's the significance of your calling. You see, I had to go through that. Because now if I tell you, you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you need to understand why. You see, your doctrine is important. You cannot ever live your life without doctrine. If I put you into a Cessna aircraft and I say, now start flying, how many of you would start flying? Now don't raise your hands. I would need to take you through the theory and teach you about the engines, about the alternator, about the propeller, about the ailerons, about elevators, about everything that you need to understand the aerodynamics in order for you to fly. If I were to tell you, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, you need to understand why. Now you know why. Now let's come back to what Paul is saying here. Paul begins chapter, begins chapter 4. He says, walk in a manner worthy. And he's going to go through the process of walk in a manner worthy, walk in a manner worthy. But this time, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of how? You need to be walking unity. So we're looking at unity right now. So as we come to our heading, the first heading, we said unity is important. We need to understand the importance of unity. What's wrong with unity? What's unity? Well, unity is important to Christ. We see this in John chapter 17, verse 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's unity. John chapter 17, verses 21 through 23 says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. 
Jesus prayed for spiritual unity in the life of a believer. All believers are joined to the Lord in one spirit. And so all believers are in unity with each other as well. Simple algebraic expression, A is equal to B equal to C, so A equal to C. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And so everyone who has Christ is what? One. That's why you can look at your fellow brother, sister, sitting right next to you on your left side and right side, and you can tell them, yes, I'm a brother and sister in the Lord. I'm your brother in the Lord. I'm a sister in the Lord. Because you are in Christ, and in one spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes into you. And you all have the same spirit. So, so unity was important to Christ. In fact, Paul was in prison for unity. Do you remember that passage in Ephesians chapter 2? Would you turn there, please? Ephesians chapter 2, just one page behind. And, and it's uh, verses 13 through 18. As we look at Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 18, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one? Who are the made us both one? It means a Jew and the Gentile. No longer is a Jew a Jew. No longer is a Gentile a Gentile. It says a Jew and a Gentile, when they believe in Jesus Christ, now become part and parcel of this new body, the church. And see what he says. And has broken down in his flesh, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. So if you're part and parcel of the body of Christ. I mean there's the body of Christ, the universal, the invisible body. And then there is the local body, right? Family heard at church is the local body of Christ. That's why when you become a member of the invisible body of Christ, you automatically should seek membership in a local body. Does that make sense? Yeah? Someone said, well, I'm a member of the invisible church of Christ. Good. And I remain invisible on Sundays. Well, you cannot be a member of the invisible church of Christ and don't Find a local body to worship. If you're here this morning, brothers, sisters, beloved, if you're here this morning, you're here because you wanted to identify a tangible expression of that invisible body. Right? Wrong. Right. You sought out a local body where you could come and relate to one another. Now, I'm sure you didn't come here because it's cheesecake or... Meatloaf day, right? No, you are here because you want to be part of the body of Christ. The local body of Christ. And what we see here is Paul preached that. And the Jews didn't like that. And he was in prison exactly for that. He preached unity. And the Judaizers did not like that and so they put him in prison. So unity is important to Paul. Yes? No. 
It's important to Paul. Unity reveals the authenticity of the gospel. The authenticity of the gospel. John chapter 13, verse 35 reads, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, if you love one another. So Jesus saying, other people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? How would people believe your gospel if all that you do, if all that they see in the church is division and squabble and bitterness and jealousy and harshness and exclusivism and groupism and cliques and and quarrel and intolerance to another believer? Help me. Why should they listen to your gospel? There's better unity in the Lions Club and the Rotary Club. So unity is important to Christ. Unity is important to Paul. Unity is important to the authenticity of the gospel. Unity is important. That was my first heading. Let us understand the importance of unity. Are we clear? Let's move on. Let's move on to the second heading. And the second heading is that we need to understand what are the qualities that need to be cultivated to preserve unity. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And that's multiple sermons right there. We begin with hallmark of, or characteristics that preserve unity. The first one is humility. Humility means modesty. It means it's the opposite of self-esteem. Self-assertion and pride. Humility means you have a humble opinion about yourself, your powers, your faculties. Matthew 5 says it means to be poor in spirit. It's the opposite of being aggressive. I mean, you're thinking, you're judging with lowliness. It comes as a result of being associated with Jesus Christ. You've heard that bad company corrupts good morals, right? So if you hang with Christ, what do you become? Christ-like. You hang with people who profess Satan, what do they become? Satan-like. The word for humility was not found in classical Greek. Because Greeks never understood humility. They despise that attitude of humility. I mean, even our society is so boastful, right? It's boastful, it's aggressive, it's demanding, self-exalting. And we, we, wanna, we think highly of ourselves in our flesh. We don't like to be corrected. I know. You say, well, pastor, you should be perfect. No, I know, I'm not. I remember the times when my wife corrects me and I am like, ah, 
I don't like it. Anyone like being corrected? No, I see not. That's good. That's real. But that's where we need a Savior, right? We don't like to be told when we are wrong. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told how we are to live our lives in the light of God's word. I mean, humility is essential for salvation. You and I cannot be saved if we are not humble in the first place. Christ exemplified unity, I mean humility. You see, Christ was persecuted, he was betrayed, he was condemned, he was despised, he was left on the cross, he was mocked, he was numbered with the criminals, he was killed, but at all points he did not retaliate. We see this characteristic in John the Baptist. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 verse 30 said, He must increase, I must decrease. We see this characteristic in the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, and, and we see 21 chapters of the Gospel of John. It never at one point of time did he ever mention his name in any of the 21 chapters. That's humility. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 reads, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, listen to me, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but would think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we are to be humble people. Humble. Humility. How do we exemplify humility? Well, begin by confessing your sins. First John 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Begin there. Next, stop comparing yourselves with other people. That's why we read Hebrews chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If you look to Tom and you look to Jenny, they're always going to be worse than you. Evaluate yourself in the light of God's word. This is how Paul could say, I'm the chief of the sinners. I'm the least of the apostles. And he also said in Ephesians 3.8, I'm the least of all people. So begin by confessing your sins. Stop comparing yourselves with other people. Constantly live in the presence of God. As you live in the presence of God, guess what? What did Isaiah do in Isaiah chapter 6? When he saw the vision of God and he saw he was in the presence of God, he said, Woe unto me, I'm a man with sinful lips. Living in the presence of God. Daily. Folks, if you're not humble, God will humble you. There was a preacher who once was told to go and preach in a large congregation. He was excited. He, he said, well, that's great. And he walked right up to the pulpit, a young seminarian. And he forgot what he was to say. He forgot everything. He forgot his manuscript. He didn't know what to say. He was just standing there and fumbling. 
And somehow he managed to finish it and he came down with his head bowed down and a lady, old lady, in the congregation came up to him and said, Sir, only if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. James chapter 4 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility. And so Paul begins here in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, With all humility. The second characteristic that he preserves, he wants us to preserve unity. And by the way, I, pres- I say preserve unity, and I'll tell you why. Because you and I cannot create unity. We can only preserve unity. We can only maintain unity. The second characteristic that preserves unity is gentleness. Gentleness. It is also called meekness. It's a byproduct of humility. It is being mild and gentle-hearted. It's the opposite of, of someone who is bitter. Someone who is seeking retaliation. I mean, it's the opposite of someone who is vindictive. Or someone who is harboring bitterness. Or someone who is churning with anger towards another person. One commentator writes, is the attitude that submits to God's dealings without rebellion and to man's unkindness without retaliation. A person who is gentle is someone who willingly submits to God and to others. Meekness or gentleness is power under control like a horse that is tamed. By the way, meekness is not weakness. To be gentle or meek means you're finished with yourselves altogether. Now, at the same time, being meek does not mean you're tolerating sin. No, Moses was a meek man. He did not tolerate sin. When you're meek, it's all about God's honor. And so you will not tolerate sin, but you will gently come alongside another person for sinning because you're meek, according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You'll be gentle in your correction as well. You will correct, though. You will confront sin. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus exemplified humility and gentleness. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, he said, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So how can you be gentle? How can you be meek? Well, be slow to anger. Do not flare up. By the way, what if you flare up? Is there a Savior to forgive you? Yes. What do you do? First John 1 John 1.9, confess your sin. Go to the Savior. He will forgive you, right? All your sins, past, present, and future. Do you try to defend yourselves when you're corrected? Stop defending yourselves when you're corrected. Stop justifying yourselves when you're corrected. How do you respond to others when they mistreat you. Wives, how do you respond to your husbands when they mistreat you? Husbands, how do you respond to your wives when you think they mistreat you? I said that you think because wives usually don't mistreat their husbands. I'm kidding. 
We all mistreat other people, right? We are sinners, right? We are sarcastic. We are filled with sarcasm. We are harsh. We are prideful. Children, you get hurt when your parents correct you. Submit yourselves to God's word. Because the Bible says, are you receiving with meekness the engrafted word? That means you won't be able to even receive God's word if you're not meek. Even as I stand here and as I proclaim God's word to you, in order for you and I to receive God's word, submit God's word, meekness is essential. And by the way, if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, it says, with all humility. Do you see the word all? It's all important. Every word is important in the New Testament and the entire Bible. It says, with all humility and gentleness. That means every possible humility and gentleness, every kind, in all situations, at all times. That leads us into the third characteristic that preserves humility, and that's patience. Patience, macrothumia in the Greek, means long-suffering. Taking control of yourself, not giving away to passion. That means you're patient with people. You don't have a short fuse. And I got to remind this all the time as I'm a dad with two sons. Being patient means I don't have a short fuse. I need to be patient. Patient means you are walking around without complaining, without grumbling, without grudge in your heart. So tomorrow when you go to your workplace and your boss gives you this folder and tells you you need to get it done by the end of the day and you complain, you got to remind yourselves that I need to be what? Speak to me. Patient. Why? Because God is long-suffering. God is patient. If God were not long-suffering, you wouldn't be seated here in this church if you're saved. True? He is long-suffering towards us. And so we should be long-suffering towards other people. There's a story of a man who came to a preacher and asked him to pray for him. Pray that God would give me patience. The preacher said, yes, I'll definitely pray for you. And he started praying. Lord, please send some tribulation into this brother's life. The man who heard the prayer immediately stopped him and said, Brother, I didn't ask you to pray for tribulation. I want you to pray for patience. This preacher said, Yes, I know you asked for patience. I'm praying the exact same thing because you know what Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says. You don't know? Look at it. Romans chapter 5 verse 3. I'll read this for you. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings or tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces what? Speak to me. Patience, endurance. So if you want patience, you need to pray that God would bring what into your life? Tribulation or suffering. It means patiently waiting. But we want immediate results because we're living in a world of instant Christianity. I mean, not instant Christianity, instant coffee, right? Instant coffee, instant noodles, right? Put in the microwave, two-minute popcorn, boom, you have it. And so sometimes we want our Christianity to be instant. We want our answers to be instant. We need our children to be transformed immediately. We forget that we are not transformed yet. 
We want our wives to be godly like Christ when you are not yet godly. Uh, We want everything instant. But this is where you need to be patient. Patient even when wronged by another person. Look around you. I'm sure you'll find someone in this church who's wronged you. Hurt you. Be patient with them. Be long-suffering with them. Maybe you're sitting right next to your husband and he has hurt you. Look at him and tell him, yes, I will be patient with you. Because he's a work in progress. And same husband, your wife is a work in progress. Be patient with her. The next characteristic we see here in chapter 4, verse 2, is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another lovingly. This means suppressing with silence. It means throwing a blanket over sin done to you. This is what First Peter chapter 4 verse 8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. And you see this exemplified in Christ. Isn't this what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 verse 60? Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. He was forbearing in love. So the next time you encounter someone who is hurting you, you be like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 verse 60. He says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. That means you're throwing a blanket over their sin. Now, I didn't say that you won't correct sin. You will correct sin, but you will correct sin lovingly. But you will be bearing with one another and forgiving another person. These are the qualities that you need to preserve the unity, folks. So we've seen two headings today. We've seen why unity is important, and we've seen the second heading. What are the qualities that you need to preserve the unity? We have another heading, the third heading. And that is we must strive to preserve the unity. I don't think we have time to get into that. And I think we have the liberty to stop right here because we have a fellowship meal right after this. And so... Pray that the Lord would give us wisdom to go out and be unified as a body, right? What joy it is to see brothers and sisters live in unity. Amen to that? Amen. It's joy because Christ is honored. Paul went to prison for unity and it shows the authenticity of the gospel. Unity is important. And now you've seen the qualities that you need to have to cultivate or to preserve that unity. Do you see that? Something to take home and meditate and commit yourselves. Next week when we come in, we'll continue with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 onwards. And we will see the rest of what Paul wants us to do. Father, we thank you for the joy that you've given us in just going through the word of God, in studying your word, Being a student of your word, Father, I pray that you be with these saints, that they would be men and women committed to unity, and that they would continue to preserve the unity. And as we will look at next week, that they will strive for unity. Thank you, Lord, for this day. May you be honored and glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.